Well, if you have your Bibles with you this evening, I would encourage you to turn with me to the book of Habakkuk. If you're not sure where Habakkuk is, you can start at Matthew and work your way back in the Minor Prophets. There's a, a helpful way to remember. There's Micah, then Nahum, and then there's a pair of HZs. <clears throat> Habakkuk and Zephaniah and Haggai and Zechariah. And this evening we will be looking at Habakkuk chapter 1. We've been going in our evening services at Christ Church through the book of Nehemiah, myself and Pastor Rankin and, and Mark Husband. And uh, it just so happens in God's providence that we are at a different stage. And as I sought the Lord, I thought I would turn to the book of Habakkuk. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. The word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. Habakkuk chapter 1. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord! How long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked, for the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who marched through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings, they scoff. At rulers, they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon us. O Lord, our God, meet with us in your word. Bless us that we might become more and more like Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Habakkuk is an unusual book, isn't it? The first time or two, it's difficult to even pronounce the name of it. Many years ago now, I, have, I am approaching... Nine years here at Christ Church, and it was in a different place at a different time 
When I was very first here with my family, I was being, uh, I was candidating for the position of senior pastor. And someone, I think it was one of our young people, looked at me and asked me what my favorite book of the Bible was. And I think everyone was expecting Romans or John or Genesis. And I looked right at them and I said, Habakkuk. And some folks looked. I think some folks wondered if that was a Bible book or if it was another kind of book. And if it, those who knew it was a Bible book wondered how that could be someone's favorite book. And the book of Habakkuk is in the scriptures for our benefit and blessing like every book of the Bible. But it seems to me that this book is included to teach us an important lesson that we need. One of the very interesting things about Habakkuk is that sort of page for page, pound for pound, Habakkuk is quoted more in the New Testament than almost any other Old Testament book. It's quoted in Acts, in Romans, in Galatians, in Hebrews. We might think of all of the major New Testament books using Habakkuk to buttress the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ as it goes out. Habakkuk is a book that encourage us, encourages us to have patience in the light of hard times. And we all know what hard times are like, don't we? We think about underemployment and unemployment. We think about cancer and heart disease and strokes. We think about strife in our marriages. We think about strain with our children and our parents. And the Lord God knows that we need patience. Because the answer to all of these issues is found in the Lord Jesus Christ and his gospel. And we often need patience to wait for that answer to take root. We don't like waiting, do we? We don't like showing up early for an appointment and having nothing to do for 10 or 15 minutes. We don't like waking up on Christmas morning only to remember that our parents have said that there is a certain time to open presents. Patience is not the strong suit of Americans. So we need Habakkuk more than ever. Habakkuk is a, a most interesting prophecy because you see it is a place in which the prophet does not really prophesy. He prays. We come into the prayer closet of the prophet of God and we hear the Lord tell him and us how we can make it through the day. And so this evening, I'd like us to see three things here from this first portion of Habakkuk chapter 1. The very first thing I would like us to see is the heavy burden that comes to Habakkuk. It's a heavy burden. The second thing that I would like us to see is, as Habakkuk asks a question of our God, the crushing answer that God gives to him. It's not just a heavy answer. It's a crushing answer. And then the third thing that I would like us to see by God's grace is the answer to the question that comes from this crushing answer, which is, where is the hope? Where is hope for us today? Well, let's begin then by looking at the heavy burden that comes to Habakkuk. We see this right away in verse 1. It is the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. And this word for oracle has a weight to it. It actually means a burden that was laid on the prophet. Those of you that have studied the Old Testament prophets know that a burden 
a word from the Lord was laid upon them, and they had no choice but to speak it. It was so heavy upon them. This is a burden that was laid on Habakkuk, and the burden that we see comes in the context of a very ugly world. The background to the book of Habakkuk is that there is a great deal of difficulty, of strife, of fear going on in geopolitics. Of course, I'm going to ask you to strain your imaginations now because we know nothing of terror in geopolitics. As bombing goes on in Yemen, as Boko Haram destroys villages, as we worry about Russian missiles once again, as we think about enemies all over the globe, this is what God's people always face. And before Habakkuk, even the people of Israel faced these difficulties. There was a great downward descent from the days of Hezekiah. In the days of Hezekiah, there was the great Assyrian Empire. And you remember that the Assyrians came down and carried off lock, stock, and barrel, the ten tribes of the northern kingdom. They were a powerful, a mighty kingdom. But they are now also on the decline. There is a new empire rising up. We see this throughout the Old Testament. We see empires rise and fall, rise and fall at the bidding of our Lord. And the empire that is on the rise now is Babylon. Habakkuk calls them the Chaldeans. They are rising up seemingly out of nowhere. In 20 years, Babylon became the world power. They controlled everything of importance. Think about that for scary times. Think if right now today there was a nation that was a bunch of nobodies. Picture, for example, one of the, the stands, Kurdistan or Uzbekistan or some other stand we don't even know. And in your lifetime, they became more powerful than America and China combined. There's a lot of upheaval there. It leads to fear. And the Egyptians are still on the scene. As a matter of fact, their pharaoh is very worried about the Babylonians. Their pharaoh wants to come and ally with the Assyrians and try and hold them off. And so Pharaoh Necho leads up his army to link up with the Assyrians. There's one small problem, though. He has to go right through Judah. And so the last good king of Judah, the last king who sought God's law, the last king who brought revival, King Josiah, dies in battle at the feet of the Egyptians. His son begins to reign after him. But there's a problem. Pharaoh Necho is defeated. And on his way back to Egypt, he kidnaps the king of Judah. He reigns for three months. And he puts in his place a wicked king. In the span of three months, Israel, God's people, loses the best king they have had in generations. And then their second king, and they have a wicked, violent, foreign-supported man reigning over them. You could just imagine what that would do to God's people. How they would be discouraged. We get upset when a bad senator is elected. Don't we? Could you imagine what would happen if God's people were faced with this? And this is what Habakkuk sees. 
And he cries out to God. We see here in verse 2, he says, Oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? I cry to you of violence. You see, the problem is that there is now violence and oppression rampant throughout Israel. Real people are being hurt. There seems to be no hope. There is no safety. There is no safety in the synagogue. There is no safety in the church, as it were. There is violence everywhere. Much of it perpetrated by the king. Now, this should not surprise us because this is the nature of man, isn't it? It goes all the way back to Genesis 6, verse 11, where we read that violence and death reigns over the earth in the days of Noah. It should not surprise us, for we see that here today, don't we? Of course, there are places in the city where we don't like to go because there are guns and knives and robbers and burglars. But there's another sense in which we sanitize violence, don't we? More children are killed in the womb than in the entirety of the Holocaust. Death is rampant everywhere. Violence and oppression we see throughout the world and even here at home. And Habakkuk says then in verse 3, he says, Not only is there violence and oppression, why are you making me look at iniquity? Why do I have to see this wrong? Why are you sending strife and contention? And we have to understand that strife and contention is not what happens among siblings. It's not two or three overactive boys or oversensitive girls in a family. No, strife and contention here means that there are lawsuits that are rampant throughout Israel. There is no justice and no law. Everyone is using all of the power in their possession to abuse others, to attack others. Justice never goes forth, Habakkuk tells us in verse 4. The law is paralyzed. The law is of no value at all to help. It's as if it's standing there, looking, wanting to help, but is unable. But it's worse than that. Because it's not just that the law is not present. Look at verse 4. The wicked surround the righteous, and justice goes forth perverted. It's not just that the law is unable It's that the law is actually corrupted and on the side of injustice and wickedness. They use the law for evil. I have in my mind the scenes that come up in old John Wayne westerns. You know the stories where the sheriff is in the employ of the big boss. And he uses the power of the law to attack others. And people know they can't trust the sheriff. They know they can't trust the law. They have nowhere to turn. They have no hope. It's usually about that time that they begin wishing for someone to ride in on a white horse. I wonder if Habakkuk is praying and asking God to send that hero on a white horse and to fix things in his midst. You see, the thing about Habakkuk is that he is not just an observer of what is going on. You know what that looks like, don't you? When a reporter from 
CNN or one of the news agencies goes to some nation in Africa or South America or Asia where there is violence and oppression, and they report on it knowing that they're going to be on a plane going home. Not so for Habakkuk. There's no relief. He's not just an observer. He is living this right here and right now, and that's why his plea, his complaint comes out to God. Habakkuk makes us uncomfortable like some of the Psalms because Habakkuk is actually criticizing God. Why are you letting this happen? Why won't you fix this? How long, O Lord? And if you and I are honest with ourselves, that is how we feel at times, isn't it? How long will you let this keep going on, Lord? Fix it. Aren't you looking? And the thing is that Habakkuk's theology does not match his experience. Habakkuk was a good theologian. He understood and read his Bible. He knew God was sovereign. He knew God stood for justice and good. He knew that God punished the wicked. He read his Ten Commandments. He read his books of Moses. And so because of that, he looks and he says... God, are you ignoring us? Do you ever feel that way? I do every time I read a news story about fake marriage. I do every time I read stories about abuse of children. He says, are you ignoring us, God? Are you incapable of acting here? He is driven by his despair to actually question his theology. Because you see, we do expect God to act. Don't we? We expect God to vindicate himself. We expect God to save the day. It's as if Habakkuk is looking at God and saying, I have my limits, God, and you've reached them. What do we do? And then he actually says in verse 3 something like, just take me out of here. Don't make me look at this anymore. Society is coming apart at the seams. Why do you make me see these things, God? I need reasons for them. And he comes to God in prayer. And this is a good lesson for you and for me because I think often we view prayer as therapy. Our lives are difficult and we pray to God because we think in praying to God, God will make us feel better. We don't have to go and spend a lot of money and talk to someone who give us mumbo-jumbo, that's what praying is for. We pray, and then God's part is to make us feel better, to give us a peace. It's as if we want the fast food version of the peace that passes all understanding every time we get on our knees. But you see, prayer is not like that all the time. Prayer is often like what Habakkuk does here. It is wrestling with God It is a reminder that we don't have all the answers and we have to go to God because we don't know what he's doing. How do you handle discouragement in your life? What do you do? Where do you go? That's what Habakkuk is faced with. And then the good news, seemingly, is that God answers his prayer in verse 5. The problem, though, is it's not only not an answer that Habakkuk was expecting. It's an answer that's worse than the problem. God looks at him, and in verse 5, he answers in the first person. And 
The answer that he gives is not just for Habakkuk, but it is for all God's people. All of the verbs here are second person plural verbs. God is not just saying to Habakkuk, you. He is saying, he's given Habakkuk a bunch of y'alls. And all y'alls. This applies to every one of God's people. And he says, Habakkuk, I am at work. At first glance, that would be encouraging. He says, look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. God draws our attention to his work and he says, we have to look beyond ourselves, beyond our local circumstances, and see what God is doing, how he is at work. And God is not at work in a vague way. He says, in your days, I am doing a work. But you won't believe it. Do you know why? He says, I know you're raising a problem, Habakkuk, but I'm at work, and it's worse than you think. Look at verse 6. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings, not their own. Now, this is not new. God had raised up the Assyrians to wipe out the northern kingdom of Israel. He had told Israel that he was going to do this. I like to think here that as I understand who Habakkuk is, when God says this to him, a chill runs down his spine. Because the language here is eerily familiar to language in Isaiah chapter 29, describing things happening decades before. Where the Lord says, Because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, I will again do wonderful things with this people, and wonder upon wonder, the wisdom of their wise men shall perish. So when you hear God saying he's going to do works of wonder that you can't imagine, you should be afraid. Because God is going to get our attention. This would be chilling news. This is a new people, but this new people is worse. They are worse than the Assyrians. They are worse than other kingdoms. They are swift. They will brook no opposition. If they see a city, they don't worry about the city. They don't lay siege to cities. They build huge earthen ramps so that they roll right over them. Nothing can stop them. They are violent beyond all imagining. They defeat everyone they come up against. They have absolutely no respect for people. Look at verse 10. At kings they scoff. At rulers they laugh. They are arrogant, guilty men whose own might is their God. God is saying, I am raising up the worst of the wicked of nations to come and deal with Judah. All of a sudden, a crooked sheriff doesn't sound so bad. Why is God doing this? Can you imagine what Habakkuk would feel? One example of this that I remember, I'll date myself because it's a film that I saw when I was young. Some of you remember this. Even the young people, I think, have seen this. Do you remember that scene from near the end of The Return of the Jedi? When the forces of good have made this elaborate plan where Luke sneaks into the Death Star before it's operational. And the rebels gather together and they're going to attack this station on a moon. And then they're going to do this great plan 
and win. The only problem is there's this scene that unfolds. And you can watch the despair build up as there was no surprise that Luke is there. And the Death Star is fully operational. And on the moon, it's not some weak abandoned post. There are crack troops there waiting to spring a trap. You see, I think sometimes we expect life to be fixed by neat plans and heroes. And if we expect that, we will always be disappointed. Where then is our hope? If we're living in times like Habakkuk, where then is our hope? I think our hope is in two things. First, in knowing that God is in control. Now, that doesn't jump off this passage. God doesn't say to Habakkuk, now, now, Habakkuk, don't worry about it. I'm in control. I'll take care of this. It would be much nicer for us if he did, didn't it? But it's all behind the page, isn't it? How did the Chaldeans get going? Who rose them up? God. They think they're in control, but who's in control? It's God. God is in such control of everything that happens that we can trust him even when we don't understand why it's happening. or We don't like what's happening. God doesn't relinquish control and let someone else take over the steering wheel for a while. God is always working his holy and good ends. And we don't need to know the answer then. Because God's in control. We don't know the way out. But don't worry. God does. We need to remember who God is. Not how we are going to fix things. And then I think there's a second and final thing that we see that gives us hope. And it's actually, it comes from one of the quotations here from Habakkuk. Look again in Habakkuk chapter 1 verse 5 where he says, Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. And, and that is bad news. God is saying, it's worse than you think. People are coming, you can't stop. I'm doing something you wouldn't believe if I told you. Now turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter 13. This is when Paul is on a missionary journey. He's with Barnabas, and they're in Antioch. And they do what Paul always did, they go to church. I'm glad you all are here tonight. You should go to church. Even when we don't have a joint service, you should be at church. So Paul goes to church, and a passage is read from the law and from the prophets, and the rulers of the synagogue say, does anyone have, now catch this, a word of encouragement? Who has a word of encouragement? And Paul gets their attention. Luke actually tells us Paul stands up and with his hand, he says, I do, I do. And he begins then to speak. He tells them about their history that they already know. That God chose our fathers and brought them out of Egypt. And he gave them the land of Canaan. And he gave them judges. And he gave them Samuel. And he gave them a king, David, who was a man after their own heart. And now, 
He is consummating that work as he brought John to baptize Jesus Christ. And now he has set us as messengers about the salvation that he is bringing. He has brought good news, verse 32 of chapter 13. The good news that he promised, and he has fulfilled this by raising Jesus from the dead, his son. And then he gives them the end of this good news, this word of encouragement. And do you know what it is? Look at verse 41. It's Habakkuk 1.5. What is God doing? God wants us to see that our hope is in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and in trusting him. Would you have wanted to be Habakkuk? Would you have been excited about the Chaldeans coming down? I don't think so. How would you have liked to have been John standing at the foot of the cross? You'd think everything was over. Jesus is supposed to bring the kingdom. Here he is being mocked. Here he is being killed. Nothing is going to change. God, why aren't you acting? Why aren't you doing something to fix all our problems? And you know what God is saying? I am. It's a work that you wouldn't believe if I told you. It's a work that seems so bad that if I told you, you would say with Peter, no, Lord, anything but that. God knows what he's doing. The greatest work of mercy and grace and hope in the history of the universe was the darkest day. When we see that and we latch on to that hope, all of the problems that we have are seen in light of that. That the gospel of Jesus Christ is the answer for all of our problems. Not in minute, quick fashion. Believing in Jesus will not instantly rid your body of cancer. Believing in Jesus will not instantly put food in your refrigerator. Believing in Jesus will not instantly put money in your bank account, but believing in Jesus will give you hope to face everything that comes your way in God's providence. This is what God is teaching Habakkuk and what he's teaching you and me. There is no hope in the world out there. There is no hope in the Babylonians. There is no hope in the Egyptians. There is no hope in the Assyrians. There is no hope anywhere but in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And there, there is more hope than we could ever imagine. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there is indeed none like you. You do works of wonder beyond all our imagining. Lord, Help us to understand that you are in control of all things at all times. Help us to understand that indeed all things do work together for our good. And that that does not mean that each and every individual instance will turn out well for us. But rather that you are continually pushing us on toward the kingdom. That you are refining us to be more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, he is our hope. Open our eyes that we might see him more and more and trust you. 
This we ask in the name of our great and mighty Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, Amen.